0: Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to.
1: Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hey, welcome back to The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to with a nice little footnote parenthetical parenthetical that says we would love it if you do we also invite any questions or recommendations on articles to review
0: and i would add to it let us know what's hard for you mm. about reading these articles or yeah. like reading just in general like if you've never been one to regularly engage with written scholarship mm. maybe let us know like yeah. where your like hang up is with it yeah I love yeah. that. Yeah.
1: An in, in, invitation to the limbic system to tell us. I like it. Where's the motivation? Yeah. I, if it's gone, that's okay. Right. Just want to know where it is. Oh, I love it.
0: We're already into the meat of the article. <laughs> that's, that's it right job. there. That's a good job.
1: Uh, yeah. So this is part two of the article that we are reviewing by Koziel et al. The first of. The first of Four. Five, four. Four. Yes, and then we're going to do a little Siegel article
0: yeah, at yeah, the yeah. end. Yeah, we'll take.
1: Um, so this is, again, Coziel, Barker, Joyce, and Hrim. Coziel um, et al. is what we'll probably say throughout the article or Koziel episode today. Coziel and colleagues. Cozyel and colleagues. The title is Structure and Function of Large-Scale Brain Systems in the Journal of Applied Neuropsychology Child.
0: Yeah.
1: So last episode... I almost said last week, but that's not true. Last episode, um, because, you know, there's a delay. Yeah, in the we're, we're in different
0: times. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, last episode, we sort of introed this article, talked about how Koziel and his colleagues are looking to create a structure and an understanding in the field of neuropsychology of how does this large system called the brain, with many different parts and systems and subsystems, organize itself to best meet the needs of day-to-day life mm-hmm. and one of the things they were combating against is this what was for a long time broadly accepted of a modular view of the brain yeah. where one part is on other parts are off and that part is giving all of its information to the present circumstance and so it's kind of like a um, which light is
0: on yeah um and then the other lights could be off. Right. To me, it's very similar to the way we think about like a a torch passing a flame from mm. other torches. Like in order for that torch to go on, it has to be touched by this torch and then the next torch and mm-hmm. then the next torch. Mm-hmm. Otherwise it doesn't, you know, without that linear sequence of information and energy, yeah. it doesn't light up.
1: Yeah. So Coziel at all are looking at
0: Which is a very simple you know, I, I like thinking about scientific evolution as we move from simple to complex. Mm-hmm. So that, in, that understanding is, to me, understandable given the, um, the complexity of the systems we were using to inquire about how the brain worked. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's the common structure of any sort of developing thought is that it has to start too rigid and then Too get linear. nuanced, yeah. and then it, there's a grounding, and then it gets nuanced, and then there's, so now we have three parts, and we have to nuance the relationship between one and two, and two and three, and then- One and three. And mm-hmm. then it builds, and yeah. So Koziel at all are on this kind of um, kind of front end work of where are we going now in neuropsychology? Now
0: you know? that we know that it's not linear, yeah. how do we conceptualize and imagine a functional system? such as the brain.
1: Yes, yeah. so then their kind of um, construct or structure of the brain is to, based on neuroimaging studies and lots of neuropsychological neuropsych- analysis, they're proposing seven large brain, sca- large large-scale brain structures that then have subscale um, structures. Yeah, small world structures. S- small world mm-hmm. structures that work together to piece information incoming and outgoing mm-hmm. to best fit survival of the whole human organism. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very complex. And so then we, what we talked about is the first three, really, we talked about the default mode network, the ventral, um, attention network and the dorsal attention network. So just yeah. to give, do you want to give a little, uh, summary of the three? For well, the yeah, listeners? just
0: even just to, to not get buried into the, 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 Kind of density of the language just going functionally. Mm. Um, remember, it's non-linear. So that means in, a, in stimuli recognition, whether it be external or internal, it's always both mm-hmm. of some kind. Um, but we're, we're looking at from the simplest structure into the larger system integration. The default node network is sort of our resting baseline or pulse, um, which is again, experientially and contextually dependent over time, relationship uh, sensitive. So, mm. what it learns in relationship is is very uh, impactful to the overall animation of the mode or of the network. Um, but that really establishes like, are we, how are we going to interpret everything that comes into the system? Mm-hmm. Is kind of determined by the state and uh, function of the default mode network. Yeah,
1: yeah. They kind of use the language of white noise of the brain. It's Mm -hmm. sort of this
0: background noise noise that
1: keeps us going. Just regulatory learned functions. And it's very interconnected between all the other brain regions. So keeps us just regulated and moving forward.
0: Yeah. Someday I want to do an overlay of Kozio and Panksepp's idea to look at what role can we imagine between the seeking circuit and the default mode network mm. as we look at the animation of a nervous system. Yeah. Um, yeah, Just to see, because if we're thinking about the default mode network as a experientially and contextually relationally dependent system, then that really does change how we uh, feel in terms of regulation or, or arousal. So hyper or hypo arousal. Yeah. And yeah. that then gives way to that's where the link I'm seeing between up and yeah, Kozu.
1: Yeah, I think it would be very interesting to tether PonxEp's like primary processes. So mm-hmm. emotional mm-hmm. sensory homeostatic. and homeostatic affects yeah. as like base layers for this default mode network yeah. that then get bumped mm-hmm. and require adaptations and then expressions of those adaptations based mm-hmm. on the other networks. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, that would be
0: super interesting. Super interesting. So the way Koziel and colleagues then moved from the default mode network or the DMN is they started to talk about how does that system, um, how is that system interfaced with information, both from the environment and from within the self or within the organism itself. Mm. So then they talked briefly on the ventral or sorry, the visual network. Um, and from there, we looked at what systems are current, are connected to the visual network. So how am I processing my visual environment around me? Hmm. And that was then through the ventral attention network and the dorsal attention network. And again, very broadly, uh, or you know, at the at the um, risk of reductionism, <laughs> the ventral network is thinking about things outside of the self or immediately toward mentalization. So mm-hmm. right towards like. What am what I doing happening? to the environment? What's the environment doing to me? Yeah. What might happen in the immediate future, and yeah. how do I then appraise that on what safety feels like to me right now? Yeah, the dorsal attention network then is saying, okay, with all of this information happening simultaneously, these appraisal systems functioning, and my internal resource measurements sort of uh, saying, here's how prepared we are for the present mm-hmm. situation uh, in. You know, good or bad, like Mm. I'm either prepared for or I'm not prepared for, or here's where safety is. Here's where threat is. But the dorsal attention network is paying attention to largely interoceptive processes. So here's how my nervous system is feeling. Here's our overall, um, you know, integrative, um, health of our system how am i how could i be right yeah yes exactly so you know if you have a like a sore toe or something like that well if i need to run that's going to be a big problem mm-hmm. like i'm kind of nervous about well i don't know if i'm able to move as functionally as i yeah. need to um, also if you have like a you know something going on in your stomach or you're hungry or you're tired like mm-hmm. all of those things are going to shape uh, the way that your system is appraising the stimuli yeah. in your environment.
1: I love in therapy kind of using the idea of those old TV antennas hmm. that have two. Yeah. And we're tuning between like what is happening out in the world and how is that affecting me. And there's sort of that pendulation in therapy where yeah. we're tuning and turning our attention inward to the interception of like how am I experiencing the mm-hmm. moment. And then tuning back out into what's possible and what is continuing to happen out in the world. Yeah. And doing this little like adjustment. Adjustment. Like like and it's so delicate like you would with an old TV of like Mm -hmm. finding the clear picture. Yeah. Like, can we hold that for a second and then know that it'll go away and find it again. Yeah. Um, and drift between those two attention networks. Right.
0: Right. So as they move from there, then they're they're looking now at we've got the the uh, default mode network and it's sort of interconnection between external and internal modes of attention. Mm -hmm. How do we then think about integrating these systems? Like what is really making this system a adaptive process in mammalian form? Mm -hmm. Like as we're organized around relationships and thinking about safety and connection to navigate through difficulty in our environment, what all is interfacing that system? So that's why we broke this article up into two episodes because now we're going to talk about um, the other uh, the, the other networks of the seven including the uh, auditory visual interactions, mm-hmm. action control through the limbic network uh, and up through the rest of the neocortex. Yeah,
1: and if, if you're reading along or if you're not I'll kind of explain. It. I think it's interesting that they give like the default mode network description. They give like three sentences to the vis- uh the auditory network mm-hmm. and then go into the uh, ventral attention and dorsal attention networks to then come back to uh visual mm-hmm. networks mm-hmm. to really say that the dichotomy between auditory and visual processing is um it's not even worth like really,
0: really expanding ex- upon ex- yeah, yeah
1: like they're so interconnected and and playing such a deep role with these two attentive networks Mm -hmm. that it becomes like the synthesis into an action control system. But to say like you have just strictly auditory processing and just strictly uh, visual processing, like it's, they're so connected in how we make sense of the world. And I think that's interesting. I think, you know, there's a beauty to in therapy doing work of just like focusing on what you hear, focus Mm -hmm. on what you see but then realizing that so much of our meaning made in the world is a very interconnected synthesis on why we are paying attention to what we hear and we see yeah. as prime agents of detection for safety and threat.
0: Yeah, and I think as we're, as we're thinking about um, these systems as functionally um, healthy or quote-unquote normal, So this is talking about how a system works when all of the things are hooked up in the way that they need to be Mm. and functioning in the way that they need to be. Um, People of hearing and uh, sight have the capacity to integrate these two very sensitive systems um, and in so doing make sense of their environment. You'll see this like if you hear a plane Mm. in the sky the first thing you're going to come aware of is that there's this low hum that seems to be approaching. So you're now increasing and your, your head is going to start to turn and mm-hmm. you know, you're going to start to look up and start to see, oh, I think that's a plane, so it's in the sky, so I need to look up. And now I'm looking around to see where um, that plane might be and what shape huh. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, again, those two systems working together to more accurately pinpoint the location of that stimuli and to further appraise its proximity to you. yeah, Your context is going to matter a lot then, like if you're in a uh, militarized zone, the presence of an airplane might be much more threatening than if you're in a non-militarized zone where you're just hearing, oh, there's a plane. That's Mm -hmm. cool. What kind of plane is it? Mm -hmm. But you're just looking around. You know automatically that the information is less threatening and therefore you don't need to activate into... Oh, this could be really bad. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and the authors don't go into like depth about it, but they do bring up ADHD as like an interesting yeah, anomaly I that did utilizes like that. the this integration of auditory and visual interactions in attention and action control. Yeah. So then like looking at and and really they're just citing works in which this visual and auditory integration is in some way functionally impaired, yeah. And that there's imaging studies of that, and that
0: you can really associate impaired functioning of the systemic, you know, disintegration across the uh, disorder spectrum. Oh from, yeah, yeah. They talk about it from autism to schizophrenia. Memory and, lapses. Yep. Yeah. Specifically, kind of a classic case example would be ADHD. I mm-hmm. think is what they were talking about with the default mode network yeah. because you're you're so sensitive. Uh, anything is going to captivate your attention all at once.
1: Yeah. 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 I
0: think we would have to bring in some somatic psychology
1: and embodiment sciences. But the idea that uh, a person with ADHD, and again, this is correlational, not causational. Yeah. So
0: we don't know which one came first.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 But in the in that experience of attention deficit, there is this hypersensitivity to incoming novel Uh, auditory and visual stimuli that is that is kicking the van and the dan out of their focus yeah but then and it's so fascinating i have a lot of clients who come in and talk about this new kind of like um, phenomenological experience that's being talked a lot about in the adhd world of this hyper-focused Mm-hmm. So then the, the brain will have like moments where it goes into a hyperfixation and then it's in its quote unquote ADHD brain. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what we're, what that feels like is this pendulum swing between a hyper open and a hyper closed auditory visual uh, network that is working with the ventral and dorsal attention
0: networks. That's interesting. What part of that are you? Or are the clients bringing in? Well, they
1: they they talk about um, and you know you'll see this on TikTok or, yeah. or different people on like Instagram or social media talk about this like well, I have hyper fixations. I have hyper focus. So like sometimes I get hyper focused on doing the dishes and I forget that the spaghetti's boiling over and I I'm so hyper focused on what I'm doing that I'm inattentive in my mm-hmm. attention towards this other stimuli. So in that, that
0: you're you're conceptualizing then a hyper. I think this is the word that you just used, but the hyper open or hyper closed. So hyper open to the focus Mm -hmm. and closed then to other processes happening in the environment. Yeah. And just
1: thinking, and that that feels resonant to me of thinking the natural pulsations of kind of biology. Yeah. Well, Uh, I
0: like the open and closed. Yeah. 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 Rigid or, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Rigid or chaotic. It would be two other words, but how this system, a, a disintegrated system is going to have some version of quick uh, mm-hmm. processing flips.
0: Yeah. We'll get to that in the cerebellum. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and, and that this, in the experience of an attention deficit moment, that there is either a closed, rigid action control um, system that is using the van, the Dan, and this auditory visual, visual inter- inter- interfacing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or it's a hyper chaotic. So that's the, you yeah. know, the scattered. The classic ADHD is like the scattered brain. I'm running around, just kind of, I'm caught in every wind and wave. Yeah. Um,
0: not exclusively focused on one stimuli mm-hmm. or the other. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I think that's fascinating. That the idea that that action control is not something that is just like a willpower of the thinking brain.
0: Yeah, the actually, top down dominance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You
1: just need to like know that this is important. It's mm-hmm. like, well, you know that it's important through experiential learning that engages your visual and auditory systems mm-hmm. that combines with your attention networks. And it's that integration that then what we're gonna go on to talk about connects with these other systems of learning.
0: Yeah. Your limbic system and yeah, the- can we let's take a little loop on memory okay. with this because excuse me the i'm just fascinated by memory it's Uh,
1: so much more than we think it is yeah
0: yeah all the time yeah um
1: well call back to a perry episode oh nice which is all you are yeah memories of fear all you are is memory yeah even the atom and the cell of you yeah is memory
0: and so if we think of it that way the atom and the cell are each contributing to the specialized systems that we're looking at now Mm -hmm. that changes the awareness and type and depth and integration or lack thereof of these systems Mm -hmm. and even then how you're going to orient the environment and produce some sort of action Mm -hmm. like that's really profound and, and just to say it in those few words doesn't really Capture Do like, it the, in, the intimacy mm. of the role of memory. Um, because, it, it, you know, how, how is it that we have these implicit meanings made of experience mm. available for recall at the implicit and explicit level? And yet it's not this like codex of photo albums of every single moment we ever experienced. Mm-hmm. Like something happens in the encoding of the memory that takes it away from the actual autobiographical contextual accuracy and puts it into functional adaptability like this is we're going to remember this because it's going to inform the animation and interaction of these systems Mm. as we go forward yeah
1: well yeah and and we talked about this a little bit before the the episode started recording but the idea that every time you move or act or go forth into the future you are re-evoking the past. Yeah,
0: remembering.
1: Yeah, you're remember re-hyphen remembering yeah. the future. Yeah, and and you walk into the future with memory being a core dynamic of how you're doing that. Yeah, and like to me that just that feels so important to expand upon our understanding of why we do what we do.
0: Yeah,
1: and it's not some like chance thing. I I love. And Freud has a book called The Psychopathology of Everyday Life, in which he's really just trying to convince people that, um, which is such a common (laughs) belief nowadays, but in his day, he's trying to convince people that there may actually be a reason why they do the silly things that they do. Yeah, Where it's not just like chance that you forget a name and it just is like, ah, I just forgot a name. He's like, no, there's probably a reason for that. You're remembering in a particular way for a reason. For a reason. Can we sit here long enough and have enough safety to say why? Yeah. Or to ask that question. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love mm-hmm. the idea of memory and and specifically with the next section of yeah. limbic network. So they they go on from this integration of auditory and visual networks that give way to action control networks through attention, to yeah. then talk about the limbic network, which is really this life source of what i would what i would call emotion but i want to i want to operationally define emotion mm. as energy in motion
0: yeah
1: so I love that and i i love how they treat the limbic system as not this like center because i think a lot of people hear limbic system they think
0: the limbic emotions
1: brain. and then what they really think is the amygdala which is and
0: maybe the hippocampus
1: yeah oh mm. maybe the hippocampus yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And and in that way, we're thinking fight mm-hmm. or flight, yeah. warning signs,
0: alarm system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But really, this limbic system, I, they they talk about the the two kind of functional hubs of it are a dopaminergic reward system,
0: um, which is very different than fear. Yes, that's again, yeah. that's super interesting. Like yes. just to just to show like mm-hmm. how the the role and function of dopamine is outside of what we typically think of in the limbic system as fight or flight response
1: yeah yes and and fear is such an interesting word to use and to tether so closely to the amygdala because norepinephrine and epinephrine and these nor and an ad-, ad what is it nor adrenate ad- and yeah okay thank you i always love that i can just be like hey can you say that word yeah yeah <laughs> um these those neurotransmitters are not inherently just like fear inducing Mm -hmm. they are activation increasing Mm. so then the tethering of the amygdala with this dopaminergic these dopaminergic systems really i think in the limbic system what they're getting at is this very complex interplay between pain and pleasure and our going towards or away from Mm. things Mm. um and when you think about how rewards and our identification of when energy is
0: needed—the
1: mm. idea of memory fits so well into that. Yeah. When we've talked about this attachment. Is... Well,
0: no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say this is what really I think got you and I started before the podcast started on the the role of memory and movement mm. because it we don't think about it, and that to me again just highlights how how skewed our our conceptualization of memory usually is that oh it's actually a conscious recall of an experience that's when you remember yeah and
1: and it's explicit articulated memory that usually has kind of like a picture autobiographical yeah Yeah,
0: very very much a visual experience internally and the closest thing i think culturally we get to where we can imagine what implicit memory looks like is like the deja vu experience Mm. or it's like i don't know how i know about this but i know about this or like i I've been here before. I remember this. That's like the closest phenomenon of internal realization that you have memories that you can't access Mm -hmm. that are informing your awareness and movement in a space. Mm -hmm. But that is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to implicit embodied memory. And that's where when we talk about the motivation and mobilization systems of the brain and its animation of our physiology and the body, we're looking at constant processing of lived experience i love that the constant processing and like a river like it's always yes. going always <laughs>
1: going and and flowing between mountains yeah and that we don't get to decide the mountains we yeah. are just flowing through them yeah um in this collective of energy that is my body and where i remember how to go places that i've been before
0: yeah yes and <laughs> that's totally it
1: i I think we were playing around with different metaphors to use around how do we communicate to listeners that these systems, like especially this limbic system, mm. it's not on I like or the off. the limbic network that they talk about. Oh, yeah. About. The limbic that, network. I yeah, like
0: yeah. that. The yeah. Lynn. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, the limbic <laughs> network is not on or off. Yeah. But that it is, it is, a, it is always a part of the processing. It's just how much is it a part? And when we think about something like attachment styles, you can see where my brain goes to like someone getting jump scared, mm. like walk around the corner. Somebody jumps out at me as like a joke. Worst person on earth. <laughs> Worst person on <laughs> earth. Maybe throw a punch. I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. It's an autonomic limbic system reaction. It's not my fault.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you scared me. I hate you. <laughs> you scared
1: me. I hate you. That's, that's it. Equation no. done. I don't know. <laughs> but then that's a I good... that's a good scenario to to look at how these functional hubs will, these functional networks and their their respective hubs will um, funnel energy Mm. in certain directions. Whereas like, yeah, some, some people would go into a limbic motivational activation of fight that taps into their sensory motor networks, tunes their attention into threat, throws a punch, and we have like, a strategy born yeah we also have people who their systems still maintain the activation of the energy in the limbic system but they functionally shift that energy into procuring more information first this to
0: me goes into the the reward processing component of the of the limbic network what determines which response you will have is your experience of the reward over time mm-hmm. like what what strategies were chosen? Because I, I personally don't have the punch response hmm. in being scared. I pull back mm-hmm. to look for more information. Mm-hmm. But that's because to me, I put myself at risk by going into the attack mode, and have experienced a lot more safety and overall ability to successfully navigate threatening situations when I pull back and assess through the
1: withdrawal. Yeah, through yes.
0: withdrawal. But that's still a reward-based motivation.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, and I love the, well, okay. I have like four thoughts. First, I want to say that reward-based motivation is experientially dependent. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I would love Koziel and his colleagues to like really kind of emphasize in their ongoing work, but we bring it out just by being us is the idea that all of this is developmentally dependent. Yes. Um, which is
0: not in the writing yeah. as yeah.
1: yeah yeah the writing is a snapshot it's a it's yep. a picture taken with a camera of the current state but yeah we like a
0: lot of neuroscience research is yeah
1: yeah and you got to integrate the pictures to get a film and then yeah. you have
0: an Most understanding picture. Yeah. yeah
1: but they do talk about as well that the limbic system allows the brain to learn what to do for the purpose of achieve, achieving positive outcomes and it teaches the cerebral cortex what not to do to avoid negative outcomes, mm-hmm. which I think is such an teaches interesting-
0: teaches the cerebral cortex.
1: Yes. So the limbic system of what to do teaches the cerebral cortex what not to do. And which is, I find that so fascinating when we start to talk about the language of story and state mm-hmm. of what's the story we're telling ourselves about what is happening in the world. Yeah. And a core component of how we get to those stories is our emotional expression or lack thereof in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. So, like for clients talking about like the emotions of and the stories we tell ourselves of like why well, I can't go there, yeah, because I you know I can't express myself, I can't express my emotions, and it's okay that story of not going there, of avoidance, of inhibition is based on memory
0: Mm.
1: and it's a memory of a time where that expression wasn't safe
0: yeah
1: i'm curious if we could explore if this is the exact same if we can tune those attention networks to see if this is the exact same as the past or if there's slight differences in what we're queuing up with our vision and our auditory and felt sense with maybe we could take a risk and try Mm -hmm. something different Mm -hmm. then learning a new Either positive or negative experience, and we have learning templates. Yeah. Um, But all that connects to this very intricate connection between stories. Stories are dependent upon our experience of expression or inhibition of emotion. And
0: I, really hope that the listener is is tracking because this is just such interesting conversation and getting into the article like just look at those seven large-scale brain systems and start to imagine how they interact to form these types of sequences because what you just described i'm thinking about the limbic network and its motivation reward-based automation interacting then with the sensory motor network and the frontal parietal network you just talked about a back to front and front to back loop mm-hmm. that's happening constantly. Yeah. Constantly. Constantly. That's yeah. super important. I really like their language when they talk about, this is jumping ahead a bit, but just to make the point, um, frontal parietal lobe interactions specify the parameters of action. Mm. I love that. Mm. This is, this is getting into the frontal parietal is the most neocortical region in the large scale brain systems that they talk about. Yes. Yeah. So in that you have a top down reference to a bottom up motivation mm-hmm. to specify the precision mm-hmm. of the movement that's really interesting yeah like that's looking at okay so the 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 brain is so dynamic in how it's interacting with the lived environment that it's saying okay i feel this motivation coming up and this action getting ready to create effect Here's how we can shape it to make it the most precise to get the reward and the outcome that would best suit our survival needs.
1: Yeah, that's what makes ruminative thoughts, ruminations, so complex. Like they're almost paralyzing when when they're oh brought up. Oh my gosh! Because what is happening is the parietal, the frontal-parietal system is having an awareness of where not to go. Mm based on the limbic system's expression of, hey, I have energy to express. And here's where it, I'm here's it, where it's going. It yeah. needs to go. Yeah. And at the same time the frontal parietal system can't is saying go. based on past experiences, can't go. So then ruminating thoughts are this weird complex of activation with no release.
0: Yeah. And in those two systems alone you have you have contradictory neo cortical or uh, neurochemical functioning yes so you literally have the gas pedal and the brake pedal to the floor at the same time yeah inhibit inhibiting one another yeah yeah
1: I, and punctive has so many interesting like things to say about ruminations as mm-hmm. ruminations are kind of these signs of these uh four brain cortical zones telling you like giving you hints as to where the energy needs to go yeah but in giving you the hint, it's holding back the energy. Yeah. And so it's not that you find release through the expression mm. of like the explicit content. Like these are the thoughts, but the thoughts give you a nice breadcrumb trail to this is how my body is going to release yeah. that energy if it has enough safety.
0: Yeah. Um, super fascinating. And you're talking about complex parallel process. Yes. Not linear. Yeah. Cause and effect.
1: Yeah. When you talk about, like, and sometimes we'll say in trainings and consultations, like, rumination or the, like, emotions don't last long. They're pretty express release. Their express release patterns are are not going to last days, hours, well, yeah. months. Right. But ruminative ruminative processes do. Yeah. And I think a lot of people so are the afraid. Feedback loop. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people are afraid of emotions because they equate emotions with ruminations, mm-hmm. that this will, this will last forever. Yeah. It's like, actually, we've gotten it backwards. The reason those emotions are lasting so long is because they're not being released.
0: Yeah. The they're fear not, is keeping them in. Yeah. yeah. And
1: I talk with clients and it, it goes, it maps on so perfectly. They're like the second half of this article of, and we've played around with different languages with some of the people in our in our center, but experience, express, I say release, but Mm -hmm. other people were saying embody. Mm. Experience, express, embody. Experience, express, release. That is the way to release the energy that these frontal parietal systems are saying. Yeah.
0: Parameters. What I hear planted in the word embody is a... It is a... um, acceptance of release and then the meaning made of the release mm-hmm. is that it's a yeah. part of me yeah yeah yeah, yeah. in a, that way maybe I it would it's be a it's a four yeah.
1: experience express release in embody. body
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah to name it explicitly yeah
1: yeah i think uh in one of the other like hot takes i wanted to point out with the limbic network is and i will say to clients somewhat provocatively that there is no such thing as emotionless decision making. Mm. You can't make a decision without emotion.
0: Yeah.
1: Period. Neurobiologically it's not possible.
0: Explain why that's a hot take.
1: Well and this is like a lot of my pragmatic clients who are more business oriented, objective. objective. Yeah. They will say I, things like, well, like I I need to make a decision. Like the emotions get in the way. The emotions will like cloud my thinking mm-hmm. and I need to be very objective and precise and I need to know what I'm doing when I'm doing it. Yeah. And so any decision, if emotion is a part of the decision-making, it's seen as... Maladaptive. Than, yeah, maladaptive. It's yeah. going to get
0: muddy. It's going to take, take me a, away from my correctness or my precision. Mm-hmm. And it's going to make me not mm-hmm. get the outcome I want.
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. usually I'm I'm having kind of a playful discussion about like, what if that is still you basing that decision
0: on Off the emotion? emotion? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You have different motivations, energy and motion that are guiding you away from the expression of certain emotions to the expression in favor of, of others. others. Yeah.
0: Inhibited, yeah. very mm-hmm. conditioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean that in terms of like energy conditioned, like it's like a transformer on a telephone pole gets raw energy from city utilities mm-hmm. and has to condition it down To a consumable power Mm -hmm. by the house that's that's feeding off the transformer so it's like it's still a lot of energy and it's still happening but it's just conditioning it down to what your and again that sensory motor network to specify the parameters Mm. of the action Mm -hmm. there's something to me about that language that is just so spot on to specify the parameters of the action Mm. that's still energy in motion yeah but it's being conditioned and formed or shaped or very transformed transformed exactly yeah yeah yeah. transformed to a very specific purpose Mm -hmm. like it has to go into this wattage
1: yeah Yeah. and i love that you brought up memory earlier you got us because like why do we transform it in the way that we do well because it's worked in the past in some way based on our activation of emotion and our felt sense of its reward or punishment
0: yeah and there's so much more to this than you than you know <laughs> infinitely like, more <laughs> yeah than than you know in your head of like well why do i do that you're saying everything i do is based on my lived experience i don't remember a time where this came up or where anything was even associatively similar mm. your body does mm-hmm. it, you know to be in a truly novel environment is I mean, that's an existential crisis. Like you're... you're it, it com- Potentially trauma. I mean, it is trauma. Positive really. or negative. Yeah, like... If there's no attuning There's trauma. no way to process the experience you're having based on previous. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no... You can't... By the design of the mammalian organism, you can't make sense of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love the... Um, this connects to me to what the sensory motor, what a what an interesting function the sensory motor network provides in its templates of past bodily activation patterns. Yeah, um, they talk a little bit about the cerebellum as like a refiner and producer of quote unquote programs. Yeah, and these programs are uh, basically sensory motor activation patterns mm. that have worked based on different inputs of yeah. uh, auditory visual and attention stimuli, yeah. attentive stimuli. I
0: love they use the sensory motor prediction.
1: Yes, yeah. And in, in what you're saying is sometimes I don't know, I don't have all of the information to know what the environment is like, mm-hmm. but I have enough to to do a little bit of an activation of my body to try to get more stimuli from the environment to see what it's like. And this is where I think in some adaptive patterns of dealing with trauma, I mean, this, this, it makes so much sense why people recreate experiences that are negative relationship patterns and stuff. Yes. Because their system is trying to figure out like, is this like the past? Do I need to, do I need to go into strategy to stay safe? Mm -hmm. And in in these little micro expressions of how to be in the world based on these templates held in the cerebellum it's it's getting these little expressions of you know i need more information mm-hmm. well in the search for more information it it's also creating yeah and then we find ourselves in these situations of like why do i keep coming here why do i keep coming to these places where i don't like to be yeah it's like well your system is isn't sure where you are and so it's It has to do something.
0: (laughs) This is interesting. I'm going to say my version of this, and I want you to see if it's similar to that, because this reminds me of the first problem, the Mm. the concept of the first problem that you and I have talked about Mm. before, where it's a theory of stimuli, novelty, and continued pattern animation Mm. that I find myself in the same relationship pattern. That's a great example. Why do I keep getting into relationships with these types of people? I think there's one way of looking at that that would say, well, you're you're just going into, into similar environments because your system has adapted to that allostatic normalcy. And uh, like adapted to or
1: adjusted your attention to see mm-hmm. and to hear that environment. Yeah,
0: like you know it's more predictable to you mm-hmm. than the other. I think there's another way of looking at it that says, well, perhaps... There is an awareness of imprecision and inefficiency and sort of unfinished business within your physiology that says, I know I need to go back there. There's something I've yet to understand. And so I'm going to really just immerse myself in it again to try, that's that first problem idea. Like I'm constantly using my first experience of the most novel. My first template. My first template that I didn't, it didn't fit. Yeah. So I'm just going to... If I find a situation where I might learn more about why it didn't fit, I'm going to go to that. Yeah. I'm going to try to make it fit this time Yeah. so that then all of the past will make more sense. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that feels... Yeah. And if there's a disintegration between the neocortex, the stories we're telling ourselves, and the experiences our bodies are having in the world... Which is so connected to the sensory motor um, network. Yeah. Then we will, our sensory motor network and these refined templates of behavior in the world will continue to try to get the neocortex's attention. Yeah. Until it says, like, I have a new network to propose to you, oh. a new story that needs to be created. And I will keep refining this network until I get your attention. And that is such a, I think I feel in this moment, like I want listeners to know that our heart and like even playing with this concept is not anywhere close to shame. Mm -hmm. It's so towards adaptability and seeing how our brains are always trying to create more integrated stories of how we are navigating our world and have both threat and safe and safety
0: because with this with the systems understanding you see why like If I can tell a more integrated story of my past, that means I'm going to be more prepared and resourced in the present and be able to predict safety versus threat in the future. future, So I'm going to really prioritize my storytelling of the past and its coherence. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try my best to find salience and, you know, a a high degree of fitness between what I'm, what sense I'm making of my past experience. And if I have an opportunity to enact and try on a different way in the same memory network i'm gonna do it
1: yeah and if if this is where we stress so much like the attention tuning those attentive networks especially the dorsal network Mm -hmm. into what are these templates that the sensory motor network the body has yeah for expressing and releasing (laughs) <laughs> the energy that it is both receiving and holding.
0: Yeah. The sensory motor predictions in their response to the neocortical or, or frontal parietal I- intersection, like what they talk about here. You read this sentence before we started recording, but these refined programs are then projected back to the neocortex, which retains the most efficient representation of the sequence. Mm. Therefore, the frontal cortex retains what the cerebellum learns. Mm that front to back back to front processing of current experience to lived experience to future prediction yeah 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 i mean present to past to future future to past to present
1: like milliseconds yeah so many loops of that work are happening in a millisecond yeah and i think you know, we joke around with different ways of saying that, like there's no such thing as a future in the past because it is fundamentally in the present. You are re-evoking that Mm -hmm. all right now. Or you could say like there's no such thing as the present without the yeah. past or the future. Well, I future. remember
0: you and I talking about like humans are the intersection of the infinity symbol. Mm. Like yes, the past is coming and evolving into the present, which is the human, which is also referencing the the, the yeah. future. Like yeah. we are the center apex. Yeah. Of that infinity symbol. To
1: sound very like nerdy scientific and nerdy and scientific, it's like we are where the bending of space and time meet Neat. together. That's right. Like the curve of the infinity sign like where they all meet that's what a human is yeah um that's
0: so our physiology mirrors that it's it's very much yeah yeah, like that's 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 consistent
1: and the this is oh this is interesting like we never said this but the bigger our infinity the more healthy our present yeah Mm. so like the more we can tolerate going into the past and holding on to a future possibility. Mm. In the present, having a coherent self-narrative that is both brain and body, Mm -hmm. our infinity will be larger.
0: Yeah. So real quick, let's clean up the frontal parietal network. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is um, kind of made up of what I think we typically think of as the the neocortex Mm -hmm. or our our prefrontal cortex, which is associated and enveloped within this network. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, really... Simple sentence here. Uh, the frontal parietal network is commonly engaged during effortful cognitive task performance requiring information or rules to be held in mind, also known as working memory to guide behavior. So this is a very important executive function center to, uh, to, um, more precisely and accurately define the spatial, uh, you know, place or, uh, the parameters of being in the space and acting in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to plan things. We need to reflect on our current awareness of what processes make up riding a bike or, you know, mm-hmm. like driving a car or making a meal, whatever. Yeah. Like it's all very, I like that the phrase effortful cognitive tasks. Mm-hmm. Like I need to be conscious right now of what I'm doing. Because without it, I might not get the result that I want. Yeah. I love that they talk about right and left hemisphere differentiation.
1: Yeah. and they only got 12 minutes. I know. Um, I know. They say, I just want to read this and, and then talk about why this all matters <laughs> in yeah, some way. Yeah. Um, and we'll go on. We have three other articles. But uh, they say, the level or degree of control varies as a function of internal and external factors setting the task context. They go on to then differentiate between the left hemisphere's frontal parietal network and the right hemisphere's yeah. frontal parietal. With just a by way of quick summary, the right hemisphere frontal parietal network is critical for cognitive selection driven by the external environment and the context independent behavior. This means that it is oriented towards the novelty of the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, novelty if you're integrating sensory motor um uh, essentially sensory motor stimuli from the rest of the networks the attention both the attention networks the visual auditory the limbic so that's where you know novelty so then one thing that we're wrestling with as therapists is a healthy mind is one that integrates both context specific and context generalized ways of being in the world Mm -hmm. and kind of zooming in and zooming out mm-hmm. respecting
0: Whoa. novelty yes respecting yeah. experience and
1: how we can get these like um presentations in therapy that are over prioritizing yeah. one or the other yeah. you know the person who says you have to be this way in all contexts versus the person who says like there's no such thing as like uh, any sort of context that should look similar to another. yeah. Or one and So I way should never is... be similar to myself yeah. in any zone. I always have to be recreating something new. Mm. And that a healthy mind, a healthy frontal parietal network is one that engages this awareness of the general cognitive context, which is generalizing what is happening now to what has happened and how I can be. Mm and an awareness of how that might be different now. And mm. what in the current context can I pick up on that's novel that would adjust how I'm to be in this world? Mm. They, The reason that feels super important is because they talk about this, um, this quick route of activation or reciprocal communication between the basal ganglia, which is in the limbic brain and very central in learning, mm between the basal ganglia and the prefrontal cortex. And so we're in this like tuning of attention that is really looking at what is what is happening, what is missing or present, and what's possible. And that is those are linking and communicating back and forth, always kind of perceiving new information, projecting new information, mm. receiving new information, projecting new information. And that feels like, I guess, a part of my heart is to communicate to therapists specifically. And then, you know, everybody else can take this for what it's worth is that, like, sometimes a lot of this feels like, where do I start? Mm. Like, there's so much information. Like, where can I start? And to me, reading these articles, I get the sense of, like, there's always, a place to go. Mm -hmm. There is always a discovery to be made as humans in processing who we are. And so in therapy, sometimes there's like that like little gut anxiety moment of like, oh my God, what are we going to talk about today? And I like feel like I evoke the presence of some of these authors and saying like there's a million roads that will show up here. Mm. I love how Tolkien says it in Lord of the Rings. He talks about how bilbo tells frodo like be careful on this road out of hobbiton because it could lead you to mount doom <laughs> and his like idea of bilbo's idea of knowing that any road could lead anywhere essentially given any other road yeah and i think in this way like it does you don't have to go into a session and say today we're gonna like really like zone into the frontal parietal network or the um, yeah. It would be network. arbitrary. Like, <laughs> yeah. But what you could do is say, what if we sort of like tuned our attention into this like large scale brain structure and yeah. how it might be perceiving the world.
0: Yeah. And, and what you, comes up for you as yeah. we're
1: even talking about it. Yes. Yeah. And then you can start to, once you added one flavor to the soup, then you can say, feels like there needs to be other flavors. Like, yeah. We've spent a lot of time looking at the outside world. What if we looked at the inside world? What does that
0: do? It's interesting to look at, and I don't know if it feels this way to you, but to me, even as we've, you know, we've talked about this material for quite some time now, but the more I come back to it, it does feel like there's sort of this like, you know, uh, like flowing, I'm doing a lot of motions with my hands Hmm. right now because I can't find the language, but like um, folding and reciprocal um, flow of connection between the the default mode network the visual network the van and the dan mm. in one kind of flow and then this limbic intersection of what becomes the sensory motor in the front of parietal it's like this i just imagine these two like again swirling amorphous like tumultuous pulsating things Mm. (laughs) connected through that motivation system that are just constantly referencing one another. Mm. And in so doing, understanding the past as its relevance in the present Mm. uh, with the information of the Mm. frontal. Uh, Here's how your uh, parameters look Mm. in the activation of this motivation. Yeah, yeah, I love
1: that. Again, for listeners, there's so much to talk about here there's levels of discussion we could go on about any of these and all of these all at once and um, I think stick with us like if you if one percent is sticking that's amazing yeah
0: and if Um, your curiosity is stoked like that's so amazing yes yeah yeah even one thing yeah hold that yeah Um, just the default mode network like just spend some time (laughs) like a cup of tea just thinking about, man.
1: This is crazy. And befriending that part of you. And yeah. when you're in your default autopilot and then noticing that I that click, that like activation. Oh, oh I'm out. Yeah. Now I'm in a different part of me. Oh, that's interesting. For what purpose? Yeah. 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 What did you notice? Ooh. Where are you going? Now we're getting somewhere. Where have you been? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Next week we're gonna look at part two or article two of this series. Yeah. um again if if you can highly recommend reading these um they are free they're out there in the world uh, you could search Cozyel's name i think that's how i got it but i also think ResearchGate. they're on ResearchGate. Yeah, they are. so mm-hmm. um read with us continue to have these conversations and we'll see you next episode
0: good luck we hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers.
1: If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyond
0: If you want to stay connected, Please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist podcast.